just say, just for the record, he should have been fired twice. He should have been fired as the GM, and then he should have been like, you're fired as the GM, and then sent out of the office, and then, hey, come back in. We got to tell you one more thing. You're fired as the coach. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 6th, 2020. And I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Good, good. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I heard that there was another horse race this weekend. Is that true? I'm going to be honest. I was in my kitchen. I got, you know, I get all these like push alerts. I get a uh, push alert, so-and-so's won the Preakness, and I'm like, ooh, didn't know that was today. (laughs) (laughs) It was a Philly, too. That doesn't happen very often. Not a Philadelphia Philly. Oh, well, then I'm out of this conversation. Sorry. Once in a while, Rachel Alexandra, you know, it'll happen. I think that was the Preakness also. But I honestly (laughs) didn't know the race was going on. There's too many sports, and no one could possibly expect me to know everything going on i feel like if you didn't know that that race was happening then i am absolved from knowing Uh, although i did actually so i guess what am i even doing here um neil you are wearing a san diego padres hat today and i I I feel like i feel like we need to talk about that you have you adopted the padres as your uh as your mlb team (laughs) well you know listeners know it's not the current padres it's a little bit of a throwback (laughs) tony gwynn era padres kind of like late 90s yeah. Turn of the century. Greg Vaughn era. Tin Caminiti. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, well, I was inspired by Emily's uh, rabbit hole from a few weeks ago uh, about San Diego. And, you know, after their uh, amazing comeback to, to win that series against uh, the St. Louis Cardinals last week. You know, I think I'll be rooting for them, even though technically I'll be that will mean I'm rooting against myself in our right. um, our contest because I believe Jeff. In fact, actually, Jeff, you're going to cannibalize yourself this round because you have both the Dodgers and the Padres. Um, but I don't know. They're a fun team. I li- I, I um, really enjoy watching them, uh, and particularly Fernando Tatis Jr. So yeah, I think uh, you know. And it's not like the other teams I would pick. For instance, the A's or the Rays. It's not like they're gonna. Uh, you know, they did anything great yesterday. They both were horribly disappointing. So uh, why don't, uh, don't I'm sorry. You have the Yankees. I have you, them in this pool. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't mean I have to root for them. <laughs> if they do win, I will accept whatever non-existent prize we determined <laughs> for this right. contest. Right. But that doesn't mean I have to take any joy in it. Right. No, you guys, I was surprised to learn that baseball was still being played. I thought that last Wednesday at, you know, like 5 PM baseball was just over. It was done. Wasn't it? I mean, the twins are not the center of the baseball universe. How dare you, As has been made (laughs) evidently clear over the years. So I think that's a you problem. (laughs) No, that's definitely a me problem. We got a got a lot of those right now. Um, The other the other big sporting event, of course, is the NBA finals, which um, uh, is you know, the Heat sort of are are trying to do our model proud. Our model now recognizes that the Heat are all banged up and, and now finally has the Lakers as a favorite. To all well, Yan- in that Laker case. F- yeah, to all Laker fans out there, this is not personal. You don't need to be all mad at us personally for this uh, for this model. We're sorry. Um, we're sorry we doubted LeBron. Right. Well, why would they be mad at us? They're the ones that are winning. Yeah, no, it's weird. Also, that series is not over last time I checked. So that's... <laughs> also that, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everyone had had just counted the heat out and Sunday night Jimmy Butler was like, I don't I no, sorry. You forgot yeah, about if, me. <laughs> if that's what it's gonna take though, forty points and a triple double for him to for them to win. And that game was not sealed up until the very end, also. I still feel like, I mean, the Lakers, I think, what did they said in the second half before game three, they had led uh, 47 out of, uh, led by double digits in 47 out of 48 possible minutes or something like that. It was like some crazy stat about how lopsided it had been late in those games. 
Um, we have a story today on the website about the different um, the different screens that the teams are using. Essentially, Jimmy Butler did what LeBron usually does, which is use um, a guard to screen him so he gets a better matchup. I found that fascinating. That like that's a an interesting little wrinkle here that that Butler out out LeBron LeBron. Um, Love I it. thought we were going to so talk fun. about the the different screens that we're all watching these games on because <laughs> I've watched them on my phone, I've watched them on the computer, sometimes the television. Yeah, yeah. Also, that screens can be <laughs> all different kinds of things. On today's show, we'll look at the first quarter of the NFL season, including the first coach fired and the first real COVID-19 test for the league. Then we'll be joined by Lindsay D'Argangelo of The Athletic to talk about the WNBA finals between the Seattle Storm and the Las Vegas Aces, in which we could see a champion crowned as soon as tonight. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We've now had four weeks of NFL football, and there have been some definite highs and lows, including the first real outbreak of COVID-19 cases on a team, which we'll talk about shortly. The big news coming out of this weekend's games is that the 0-4 Houston Texans have fired head coach and general manager Bill O'Brien. Assistant head coach Romeo Cornell is taking over in the interim. The Texans have the third worst point differential in the league, and they field the worst defense by expected points added. On ESPN's Pardon the Interruption, Michael Wilbon did not mince words about whether O'Brien deserved to be fired. Look, I, look, they're 0-4. Now, they had murderers row to start the season, and then they lost to the Vikings, which is, you know, you could make the case as sort of unforgivable right now. But, Tony, I find it fascinating that after yesterday's loss, J.J. Watt, who was like Mr. Texan, he came out basically and said, we got to make a change. We got to change some stuff up now. Whatever changes we have to make, let's do it now. Boom. The owner hears that voice. There's no voice in that franchise more important than J.J. Watt. But Bill O'Brien should never have had as much control as coach and GM as he had. Trading DeAndre Hopkins is about the dumbest move in the last five years in the NFL in terms of personnel. So, yeah, in short, sure. So leaving that dig at the Vikings aside, because we don't need to get into that right now, (laughs) what do the Texans gain by getting rid of O'Brien now? Neil, do they have any chance of recovering this season? Not really. We give them uh, a 5% chance to make the playoffs. So I guess I am saying there's a chance. Uh, And maybe that, you know, given we're going to talk about it in a second, but given the chaos in Tennessee, uh, maybe that is sort of underselling their odds slightly. But I mean, look, they're 0-4. Like you said, they have some of the worst stats in the league. Uh, I looked at the average ELO rating of their opponents over the rest of the season, and they have the 10th hardest schedule left uh, of of any team. So there isn't that much reason to think that, you know, there there will be some kind of miraculous turnaround now that Bill O'Brien is gone. Now, Bill O'Brien deserved to be gone. (laughs) You know, both things can be true, but... um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's kind of weird timing, but I mean, maybe we'll see other coaches get fired too. I mean, there's a lot of coaches on the hot seat. He was already on the hot seat after the widely criticized uh, trade for David Johnson, sending DeAndre Hopkins away. And so I think that it just was kind of natural to see, uh, you know, even though most of the time we see coaches get fired later in the season, I feel like when you're on the hottest seat, you start 0-4, you're, you you can't be surprised for this move to happen a quarter of the way into the season. I guess I was a little surprised that they actually pulled the trigger. Uh, I was too. Yeah, I mean, and and he was the 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 GM too, which was probably honestly his downfall. But they they didn't seem inclined to make a move at any point last year, and then that trade. Well, let's well let's talk about the trade. I mean, I like know, how. I- let me just say, just for the record, he should have been fired twice. He should have been fired <laughs> as the GM, and then he should have been, like, you're fired as the GM and then sent out of the office. And then, hey, come back in. we got to tell you one more thing. You're fired as the coach. <laughs> Are we sure that didn't happen? Can, because, we, can we verify that? <laughs> because he's was been a bad coach with for a long time, and, and I've never been a fan of his coaching style, which is conservative, which is boring, which is – Everything uh, not analytical or, or, you know, like in terms of innovation, it's conservative. And, and he has an amazing quarterback 
And he's had an amazing quarterback. Pro- I, Deshaun Watson is probably one of the three best quarterbacks in the league. And he's had this coach, which has been ultra-conservative, run-first mentality and, and you know, punting on fourth and one and, and all this stuff that we don't look for in a coach or I don't look for in a coach. And David Johnson, not only has he had multiple injuries to multiple different parts of the body through in the last few years, he, he's been ineffective. Um, he lost his job to Kenyon Drake last year because, you know, he, he's not an effective running back. And to go on and trade DeAndre Hopkins, who is elite, who is irreplaceable, for a running back that is is pretty much replacement level, the way I see it, nothing special. It just didn't make any sense at all, especially when you have Deshaun Watson. And it can't have helped that uh, Hopkins leads the NFL in receptions right now <laughs> yeah. with 39. No, He's help. averaging 99.3 yards per game, which I believe is a career high out of a guy that was first team all pro each of the previous three seasons. Probably first team all pro again this year. Uh, and yeah, David Johnson averaging 3.9 yards per carry. So yeah, I mean, that couldn't have, couldn't have helped his case. I mean, he, he probably wouldn't have gotten fired this early in the season if he doesn't make that trade, but it's a little chicken and egg because they probably wouldn't be 0 and 4 if he doesn't make that trade also. So it's sort of like, uh, in our NFL chat yesterday, I think, uh, Michael Salfino said, uh, made a great point, which is like, you should, the coach and the GM, really should should not be the same person uh unless it's like bill belichick i guess that's like the one exception and also the uh the clowny trade last year was arguably just as bad um maybe not as bad but but pretty pretty bad and (laughs) and that's that's not it there's been other there's been other moves too so it's definitely a trend it wasn't like one strange lapse in judgment where he's like uh we no longer need the best wide receiver in football uh, <laughs> for a mediocre running back i mean no it's it's been a trend and, and also as i said you know I, I don't think he's the type of coach who you know if you have a really talented coach like a guy who is clearly gonna like get the most out of your talent and wants particular players to make it happen then maybe give him controls as the GM, give him controls of the player personnel and the roster and all the decision making. But Bill O'Brien as a coach is not that level of coach anyway. So yeah, I think that's right. My um my favorite takeaway from stories about this yesterday was realizing that that in a time when you know the analytics are saying don't spend a ton of money on running backs, running backs are largely re- replaceable. The Texans have more money devoted to the running back position than any other NFL NFL team to to David Johnson and Duke Johnson. And like, what are they doing? <laughs> like, how is that possible? We're not this isn't we're not talking about, you know, Ezekiel Elliott talent here. We're talking about David Johnson. I found that amazing. Let's talk about another Texas team that's struggling. The Dallas Cowboys are one and three after Sunday's loss to the Browns, and they should be on four, if not for a brutal Falcons collapse. But they're lucky enough to play in the NFC East. <laughs> Jeff, what is going on with Dallas right now? Well, look, I mean, Dak Prescott. This is when we were talking about Dallas. We were talking about Dak Prescott and his contract situation. His numbers, except for, you know, an alarming amount of turnovers, but that's more of a team issue. Um, His numbers have been ridiculous this year. I mean, the offense is is not the problem with this team. They're scoring, you know, what, 35 points a week or something like that. Um, It's clearly the defense. But this is a year where defense is a disaster across the league. I mean... Points are way up. Um, there's a lot of shootouts, um, but but their defense is really, especially their run defense, is just really getting um, worked over. And and I don't know if if they're going to fire Mike Nolan, who's their defensive coordinator, but um, the Browns were just running all over them uh, last week. And if you compare, if you compound that with the amount of turnovers they have, I think they're like minus seven and. And turnover differential. This is not a winning formula, no matter how good Prescott is, and no matter how good CD Lamb and and their offense is. Um, so, I think the good news, as it is with the Cowboys, is that um, that division is awful, and the Eagles are in first place somehow. So you know the season is 
by no means over um, for Dallas. And they got the, you know, they, they have a lot of games against those. Part of the reason I like them is because they, they get, you know, four games against the Giants and, and football team. And and, and and now an Eagle team, which we didn't even realize was going to be this bad. Yeah, Jeff. And, you know, if you flip around that stat about the most difficult schedules and look at the easiest schedules, Dallas's opponents have the lowest average ELO rating of any team down the stretch of the season. So I think that that's a big reason why when even though we said the Eagles had the half game lead uh, over the Cowboys in the division, we give the Cowboys a 54% chance of winning and the Eagles only a 32% chance. And that's in large part because the Cowboys do seem better in theory, the better quarterback, you know, if they can somehow straighten out that defense to any degree, they probably should be favorites on paper. Um, But yeah, the whole thing is looking like just a mess. Well, so a quarter of the way through the season, who has, impressed us not obviously no one in the nfc east uh but are there surprises in our model neil or is it is it going pretty much as expected overall uh i mean it's it's mostly going as expected if you look at the super bowl odds the chiefs are the favorites at 26 percent. i think we had them as the favorites going into the season uh you know maybe the the packers we didn't quite expect to be have the second best odds and then the seahawks the the third best uh the ravens are fourth best right now at seven percent i think they were second going into the season uh but but that top you know four is is pretty as expected the bills would be the team that i think we did not expect to rise up into the conversation of front runner you know near front runners right now they're at six percent to win the super bowl uh they're four and oh the patriots look you know, depending on whether Cam Newton can play next week, even, I mean, it, it might be a little tough for them to to play catch up in that division. And Josh Allen looks really, really good. You know, he, he seems like um, a legitimate MVP contender this year. Uh, and yeah, I think that the, they're probably the biggest surprise because even the Steelers who are at 5% right behind the Bills, we had an inkling that, you know, based on the way their defense played last year and the fact that they were getting Ben Roethlisberger back uh, healthy after missing basically a whole season, that they could be dangerous, you know, and they're they're 3-0. and uh, and, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, after adding Tom Brady, that's another one where it's like, oh, you could see them rising mm-hmm. up the ranks in this conversation. So probably the Bills and then maybe like a team like the Rams, you know, rediscovering some version of that form from the Super Bowl run a couple of years ago. They're three and one. They have a 4% chance to win the Super Bowl. Those would be, I think, the the biggest surprise team so far. All right. Well, let's quickly check in on our survivor pool in which we all survived another week. Or I mean, I guess I should say we all got a point because we're we're going to survive every week. Um, Neil's brave Bengals pick panned out. Yeah. <laughs> my, Joe Burrow. My, yeah. My Rams did, in fact, beat the Giants and Jeff's Ravens beat football team. Congrats there. So checking the scoreboard, Neil and I both have two points. Jeff has one for week five. The pick order is Jeff, Neil, Sarah. Jeff, who you got? You know, I, I got to be honest. I don't really want the first pick this week um, <laughs> because there's yeah, a I'll lot t- of I'll trade you for it. I'll trade you. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. How, what what would you trade? Future considerations. <laughs> <laughs> but I start. I actually looked ahead, and I realized that I will have the first pick again in week eight. And in week eight is going to be this great matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs hosting, um, oh, the New York Jets. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate lock. I have to save Kansas City by that logic. Um, <laughs> even though I'm tempted to pick them this week because I think they're going to beat the the Raiders. Um, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to pick after after all this talk. I'm going to turn around and pick the Dallas Cowboys. Ah, <laughs> damn it! <laughs> because, I had that lined up. Yeah. Because I feel like they're desperate. This is a bad week. The Giants are desperate too for a win, but I feel like this is the game the Giants would win if Dallas was like coasting in overconfident. But now, unfortunately for the Giants, Dallas is going to be all out. Um, to win this game. So I'm picking Dallas. All right, Neil, who you got? Yeah, now now I have to scramble. Um, my my plans have been completely altered. No, I think um I think we'll I'll take a team that we just talked about 
as well. I'll take, um, you know, they're on the road, but I still would take uh, the LA Rams against the Washington football team. I don't know. Just picking against Washington seems like a good pick each week. Wow. I did not think that my top pick would fall to me here. Thanks guys. Um, I'm taking the Cardinals over the Jets. Oh, oh, I don't (laughs) know about that. Really? You don't know about Piggy? No, I know about that. It's a good pick. You're going to win. But um, the Cardinals stink. Uh, Have you watched them the last two weeks? They're terrible. Have you watched the Jets? (laughs) I have, actually. This isn't about saving. By the way, how is Bill O'Brien fired? And let's be honest, by the time this is out, Dan Quinn will be fired. So we can just say that almost (laughs) with confidence. Oh, my God. Dan Quinn Quinn was fired earlier today, probably. What were we talking about again? <laughs> you were talking about the Jets and the Cardinals. Yeah, the Jets are bad. I, not no, but this yeah, is I the just point. Think the Cardinals are good. I, they just have. Of course, the, they, I they agree. Really underwhelming. The the point of the point of this game though isn't to just take the teams that are obviously dominant. It's to get wins out of the teams that you don't think like that. It's to optimize wins. So. This, this is the best time to take the Cardinals against the worst team in the league, right? I mean, I feel like this is the second straight week Jeff has criticized Sarah's pick. No, that that's the third After straight week. She made it. Oh, third straight <laughs> yeah, week. Okay. okay. See, well, pick, he criticized my Titans pick too, and we and we or that whatever week that was. The Vikings the first week we did crazy. <laughs> it worked. Look, I. I as a Jet fan, I decide if there's a like a, a club for the really the miserable NFL teams, I'm the bouncer. I get to decide who comes in. The Vikings, you're not allowed in. You're not miserable enough. You have too much talent. The Broncos, who we played this week, they're actually, hey, good game. You're welcome into the club. You're also as bad as us. Um, but the Vikings have way too much talent. So what to you is the difference in fan misery between an 0 and 4 team and a 1 and 3 team? Because I your mean, team is probably going to go 8 and 8. And if they go 8 and 8, that means they're a fringe playoff competitor and maybe even a playoff team. I mean, no, they're not going to go 8 and 8. And also, no, they're not a playoff team. And even if they made the playoffs, they would immediately lose because they're bad. They're bad this year. That's yeah, it's okay. More than one team can be bad. Uh, you you don't have the monopoly on fan misery, all right? Well, yeah, I think you have a good coach. I like Mike Zimmer. Um, and I think Cousins, you know. God, now now I'm thinking maybe I should have taken the Seahawks against the Vikings. <laughs> I know, right? That was, was also on the table that. for me. I just couldn't resist. <laughs> I'm uh, going to need the Seahawks that. later. Yeah, You're, uh, Jeff's right. The Vikings are, are too good to to spend, uh, spend picks on as opponents. Uh, at this stage of the season the vikings should have lost to the texans on sunday and the fact that they didn't is it they screwed up bill o'brien's life so they're good at that they can screw up lots of things okay before we wrap up wrap up this segment we we need to talk about the other big thing that happened um this past week in the league the first significant problem with COVID 19 you know we had we had had the first two two or three weeks of the season really without many complications there but now 20 members of the titans organization have tested positive postponing tennessee's game against the steelers that for this last sunday into week seven and the patriots chiefs game was of course moved from sunday to monday after two players including cam newton tested positive so after a call monday with officials from every team the league implemented new protocols and encouraged teams to recommit themselves to best practices for dealing with the pandemic Jeff, are you surprised that it took until week four to see these kinds of problems? Um, I, I'm a little surprised, but also not surprised because I, I think, you know, we're seeing we're going to see an uptick in the number of cases across the country um, as widely predicted when it starts to get a little colder. So I think this is going to be a concern and I think teams do need to take it seriously. And, and frankly, I, I don't know if the Titans can play next week. Um, and then at a certain point, you know, the scheduling, the NFL is going to have to get more creative in terms of their scheduling. The, the finishing this season in a neat 17 weeks is is probably not going to be possible unless, the, you know, they're going to start having to have 
teams forfeit games or something like that. Um, but I think either using that week before the Super Bowl or, or even just pushing everything back a little bit to give them some cushion for these rescheduled games is going to become necessary. Because if this starts happening, you know, after we get through some of these buys, the buys give you, you know, flexibility. So after we get through these buys, that flexibility goes away. So the mm-hmm. league will have to sort of build in, build in some flexibility. You know, the, the Patriots lost that game most likely. I mean, or at least they lost a chance to be very close. They were in that game. They were very yeah. much in that game until the end um, because of Cam Newton. So in some ways, maybe that says something to the rest of the league. Hey, you don't want to be this guy that's going to cost our team a game. So I'm going to be a little bit more careful and I'm going to um, follow the protocol a little more carefully. I, I think that's a good that's a good point about Cam and other other players seeing what happened there. I, I sort of wonder if that's if that is what ended up happening with um, in MLB you know, with after the Cardinals outbreak in particular, we didn't see other outbreaks on other teams the rest of the season. There were, you know, some scattered cases here and there, but nothing like what happened with the Cardinals. And I do wonder if other teams saw that and were like, oh, yeah, no, we can't. We have to buckle down. So if you look at how baseball did after those initial outbreaks, after the Marlins and Cardinals in particular, And, you know, all of the questions about whether they would even be able to finish the season. uh, There were legitimate concerns about that. They sort of did the same thing that it looks like the NFL is doing now, which is sort of redoubling the efforts, investing more in systems to try to, you know, uh, monitor and contact trace uh, and and prevent full-blown outbreaks. And uh, the, the, the players also, I think it was a wake-up call for them that, like you said, Jeff, nobody wants to be the player that, derails the team season and is sort of responsible for, um, you know, bringing the team into this situation where like the Cardinals, they had to stay in their hotel room for like weeks and they couldn't even mm-hmm. work out. Uh, and it really sounded like kind of a nightmare uh, situation for them, even among the ones that weren't sick, you know, football is playing a full season, you know, they're going to have to stay focused and locked in and, and avoid all of the potential pitfalls into January and into February. And, uh, and you know, I think they're, t- they've talked about doing a bubble for the playoffs. So maybe it'll help at that point. But uh, yeah, I think I would hope that this is kind of a carbon copy of what we saw in baseball, where it's like a little early, like, Hey, the, let's, let's not, you know, let ourselves slack off against this thing and then kind of stay focused the rest of the year. Yeah. I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I think it was probably a little, um, you know, naive or or premature or whatever for people to be celebrating the no complications in the first couple of weeks, just knowing how things happened in in MLB. Um, But if players and teams use this, this moment to say, we can do better than this, we will do better than this to keep the season going, then there's no reason it can't succeed as we saw with MLB. Okay, I think we can end this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about the WNBA Finals. Tonight will be Game 3 of the WNBA Finals, in which the number 2 seed Seattle Storm have a chance to sweep the number 1 seed Las Vegas Aces. And so to talk about the finals and the success of the WNBA's wobble more generally, we are delighted to be joined by the Athletics' Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Awesome. So good to have you back on the show. So the Storm have won each of the first two games of the finals by 13 points. On the WNBA Nation podcast, Logan Jones proposed why the Aces just can't catch up on defense. The problem is the defense still didn't get it done. Um, Because as you mentioned, the the deficit in both games, they lost by double digits. They, They lost by 13 in each game. And I think it came from, you know, this is the sort of offensive performance that could have had them in game one. Um, But now it's game two and the storm are figuring things out on their end as well. And the aces, I mean, it's surprising because I think Bill and beard knows how to coach good defense, Uh, but there's just not, they don't look like they have the horses to, to run with this Seattle storm team. And, and to be honest, it's kind of hard to blame them when look at us, we're sitting in the exact same seats we were sitting in. 48 hours ago, talking about game one, didn't even bring up Alicia Clark, who had a real run at defensive player of the year this year. She didn't win it. She was a unanimous all defensive team selection. And Natasha Howard, who was last year's defensive player of the year, 
they both were two main offensive contributors tonight. Lindsay, is it right that the Storm just have an unbeatable amount of depth? Or would you think the series is maybe closer than the score lines would suggest? Well, I think, yes, the Storm have incredible depth. They've had the uh, deepest roster in the league all season. And in a season where team depth has been an issue, um, it's been one of their biggest assets. And if you just look back when, when Sue Bird was sitting out a few games, they had Jordan Canada come right in, and it was just seamless. So, yes, the, the Storm have depth. But I think what the Aces are missing the most of um, is that X factor that they had all season in Dierica Hamby, who was the sixth woman of the year for the second year in a row in uh, 2020. And she just brings so much hustle. She she, she snags those additional rebounds. She, she plays mu- with muscle and, and is aggressive on defense. She can also put in, put up points. She was the third leading scorer on the team with 13 points per game and second in rebounding right behind Asia Wilson with seven rebounds per game. So the aces are definitely missing her presence. And I think it's, it's coming back to haunt them. Uh, what else are the storm doing so well in this series that, that makes them so dangerous because it really seems like they're kind of, uh, it's it's so impressive the way they've played just beyond like winning. They're doing it in, in impressive fashion. Yeah. It's not just their depth. It's the talent level of that depth. The storm just play really excellent team basketball. They have so many players who could score pass, play good defense. They're fast. They get out on the break. Um, they share the ball, spread it around so well. They just, they set a finals record uh, the other night for team assists in game two with, uh, with 33 on 40 shots. So when you think about it, that means only seven of those shots were self-created, which is kind of mind-blowing for an entire game. And they have uh, they had five players in double digits. So that's a balanced scoring attack, team basketball from from a really fast-paced team that's just hard that's hard to slow down. Yeah, watching Sue Bird during I, I don't know why I why I'm ever surprised that Sue Bird keeps doing everything she does like it shouldn't be surprising at this point it's just amazing that she is you know almost 40 years old and is still running the break like you know a 20 year old (laughs) except like with all of the 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 smarts that come from being so experienced um and she set a record a finals record for assists in a game Mm -hmm. um break breaking her own record because of course (laughs) (laughs) i mean have you been is this was this a surprise to you that she would be playing at this high level? Well, I, I wouldn't say that it's a surprise. I know she was out for a long time, but she's supered. I mean, if you if you look at her resume and everything that she's accomplished in, in the amount of time that she's played, I mean, she will probably go down as the greatest point guard in WNBA history. Three time champ, soon to be four time champ. I think they're going to win. Um, 11, 11-time All-Star, three-time WNBA assist leader, WNBA all-time assist leader, WNBA all... I mean, I could go on, all-decade team. She's just... Um, nothing she does or Diana Taurasi does will ever surprise me. <laughs> yeah. Where does this put her in the in the conversation of all-time greats? I mean, does she need to... I assume she's going to keep playing at least another year, although maybe, who knows, I guess, but... Where does this land her when she when she's done? What what will we say about her? Yeah, I talked to both her and Diana Taurasi a couple of years ago. I did a feature story on them for the Athletic, just about their friendship and and their career, intertwining basketball career. And both of them said that they were hoping to play a few more years. So I don't know. Considering this was a shortened season, I know it was a very aggressive season schedule wise with so many um, games every other day, but I could see them both coming back next season <clears throat> when she does retire. I mean, like I, like I just said, she'll go, she'll go down right now as the greatest point guard in WNBA history. There's, there's just no, I, you can talk to some of the other greats. I talked to Tisha, Tisha Penichero a couple weeks ago. I did a and a with her. You asked, I asked her the same question, and, and Sue Bird, without question, was her answer. And you would hear that, I think, from a, from a lot of, of the greats. Um, she's just, she's just uh, amazing to watch. Her commitment to just staying uh, in physical shape and just constantly... I don't know how it's just improving her game year after year after year. I mean, she's just so knowledgeable at this point. It's, it's just, it's amazing to watch. 
Yeah, and and it's it's kind of cool to see her at age 39. But then like the mix of, you know, younger players like Brianna Stewart is 13 years younger than <laughs> Sue Bird and is also having an amazing series. Natasha Howard is is 10 years younger. So it's like a nice mix of veterans and and some of the, you know, the next generation of of legends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we all kind of think that it sounds like that the Storm are going to win this series. Uh, you know, it's kind of a big hole that the the Aces have have dug for themselves. What do they have to do to start the long road back to potentially coming back, or or is is it just you know too late for that now? Well, it's never too late in in, in a series. You know, you never know what could happen. I think what the Aces need to do is find a way to fill that hole that Hamby left. They're scoring uh, on offense. They scored 91 points in game two, so the offense is there. But I think what they need more from everyone is um, on the defensive side of the ball. They need to be more aggressive and, and disrupt Seattle's offensive flow, get more steals. They also need to cut down on the turnovers, which Seattle loves to capitalize on. The Aces had 15 turnovers in game two. You can't, you can't beat, you can't beat the storm with that. And you almost have to have, you know, like an all around, almost perfect game uh, in, in, in order to beat the storm. And they, the aces have, you know, but again, they had Hamby when they did. So I think, I think they can, they could take a game here. I think there's a possibility there, but to be honest, I just, I think Seattle's just going to run right away with this. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a really bad omen for Vegas that when Aja Wilson is on the floor, they're getting outscored by 25.1 points per 100 possessions. That that seems like a bad thing when when one of your stars is is uh, carrying that plus minus. Yeah, and she, she can't do it alone, you know. Um well, role players need to have to, they need to step up and that's where you see the difference in the depth and and the bench that Seattle has. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in in at moments in in game two in particular with uh, Angel McCautry, you know, kind of putting them on her back and and making a bunch of a string of shots in a row. I just don't know how sustainable that is for an entire game against a team that's as strong as the Storm. Yeah, you you can see that with the with the difference in the team kind of team basketball that Seattle plays and has played all season long. You're you're not going to beat this team just one on you know one on five. It's just it, it, it can't be just all Asia. It can't just be all McCautry. You know, there, it needs to be like a full on team effort. So it's kind of taking it, taking a step back from the finals itself and looking at this season, this very strange season for the WNBA from a health perspective, the bubble has, has largely worked out. And, and that's obviously super important. The players have been healthy um, in terms of the pandemic. Of course, we've seen lots of injuries, um, which have been a bummer, but do you, do you think the league has made gains in growing its fan base because of the unique constraints of this year? Or what do you think the league needs to do to get even healthier as a, a league itself? Well, I think it definitely made a difference because when the WNBA started up, there were no other sports really happening. So you have sports fans who probably tuned in because of that. But I also think it's because there were more games added to the television schedule. There were more games on ESPN, ESPN2. The WNBA announced just last week that there was a 68% increase in viewership across all platforms. So it's right there in those numbers, right? Um, it's The league can see right in front of them that, and this is something those of us who cover the league and have been saying for years, this is frustrating to, for me on so many levels, put more games on TV, put more, make them accessible to watch, easier to find. Promote the players, market the league better, offer more merchandise, and you will see the growth. Because everyone used to say, is it the chicken or the egg? Do, you, do the fans come and then you increase coverage and visibility? Or do you have the coverage and increase visibility and then the fans come? Well, I think it's the latter. The, the more coverage and visibility you have, you see growth. You see more fans come into the fold. You see evolution. And that's what we're seeing happening. There's been more coverage in these past two, three years than there have been in the past almost decade, you know, it's, it's just been kind of incredible the way it's caught fire, but keep it going, you know, yeah. keep showing those games. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I thought it's, it's interesting to me that I think some, some outlets, some media organizations have hid behind the, well, there's, you know, there's, too many other things going on. Once football starts, no one wants to talk about the WNBA. Once the NBA starts, no one wants to talk about the WNBA. 
Every sport is going on right now. <laughs> Every sport. And people are still watching the WNBA because they can, because mm-hmm. it's on TV. That just, you can't watch it if it's not there. You can't judge the the passion of your fan base if you're not giving them the thing that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that lesson has stuck with them this year. It's It's been so obvious now, especially with, with the trend and the growth we've seen with viewership and the league, when they keep adding more games every year, when they add more games or, or make games available on Twitter or YouTube or just easier to find, you see that rise in viewership. It's, you know, it's like banging my head against the wall. Like what, what is wrong with this formula? Like just keep, keep doing it, keep doing it. And it seems like that's a case for even more moment, momentum next year, because it will be in a little bit of a more, hopefully normal situation where they're not going up against so many other sports at once. And, and you can kind of build on the interest of that increase this year. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily a problem, like having more sports at once. If there's, if there's more options available, I think that's a good thing. But I also think, you know, that gives people more choices. And, you know, maybe one night you don't feel like watching, you know, an NBA game in regular season and, you know, you can <laughs> or preseason NBA and you turn on the WNBA playoffs because, you know, that's usually when they coincide. Um, and, you know, the WNBA may also consider maybe extending the season out a little bit more or I don't know. There's lots of options that could go and where you could build on this growth and just kind of write it. And I think they have the best person possible as the league commissioner and, and Kathy Engelbert to, to, to do this. I think she's done a fantastic job and I'm just hoping she keeps at it. Yeah. It'll be an Olympic year too, hopefully. Um, so that will be a, a chance both to, you know, market the league more and show what they are willing to do for those players and, and in terms of their visibility and, their time off and how all that works will be really interesting to see how that plays out too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of just taking it day by day, right? Yeah. With, <laughs> yeah. with, with the COVID thing, but there's a lot to build on in the way the season played out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tonight is game three of the WNBA finals. Um, we'll see if the aces can force a game four or if the storm take home their fourth championship. Thanks so much for joining us, Lindsay, to talk about some WNBA. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Thanks, Sarah. So, you know, for this segment, I'm always on the lookout for weird quirks that are going to land a player in the history book someday. And one of those happened to come up with these NBA finals involving LA Lakers guard Dion Waiters. Waiters hasn't played in the NBA finals, and he's only actually played in five games all postseason long. His Lakers are a good bet to win the championship, counter to what our model said before the series, uh, and, and counter to what Jimmy Butler and the Heat had to say about it in game three. So, you know, we'll see how things go from here. But I have a feeling Waiters really shouldn't be worried either way, because no matter what happens in the series, he will win a ring either way. <laughs> so if you recall, Waiters started the season as a member of the Heat. He had actually been playing with them since the 2017 season, but on November 8th, he had an, a bit of an unfortunate incident on the team plane. Uh, he had a panic attack that was reportedly brought on by consuming too much edible marijuana. You honestly can't make this stuff up. Uh, <laughs> no. Why is that story not a bigger deal? It is hilarious. They I remember to the plane. They had to well, the plane. Yeah. They, no one I'm was saying it. Out. No one knew at first what had happened. They weren't reporting the edible part. <laughs> <laughs> so right. at first it just seemed like unfortunate and sad. And then yeah, it, was it was like, like a oh. health problem. Like, oh, right, we're worried yeah. about Dion. And then it's like, we are worried about Dion. <laughs> I mean, at first he was really hungry. And then he was talking about weird movies. And then all of a sudden... <laughs> He couldn't stop eating Cheetos. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> yeah, they ran out of Cheetos on the on the in-flight service. A- anyway, enough jokes about that. They actually suspended waiters for con- uh, conduct detrimental to the team. Uh, and then he played three games afterward for them, which I found was kind of funny. Uh, but then they traded him. 
uh, they shipped him to Memphis in the deal that brought back Jay Crowder and Andre Iguodala to Miami. So a couple of players that have actually been kind of integral parts of the Heat's finals run. But anyway, the Grizzlies, for them, it was just kind of a salary dump. They waived waiters on February 9th. He became a free agent. A little bit less than a month later, the Lakers called. They needed a scorer off the bench, and they signed him to a contract for the rest of the season. Then the pandemic hit less than a week later, sending everyone home. Uh, but then Waiters came back, and he's been part of the L.A. playoff run in the bubble, even though he has not actually been on the court since the Houston series. But the most important fact is still that, according to league rules, he will win either a Lakers ring or a Heat <laughs> ring, and he could even potentially get money from whichever team wins playoff bonus pool, depending on whether they vote to give him money, no matter <laughs> who wins the finals. Uh, so I, obviously naturally this being a hot takedown rabbit hole, I wanted to see how many times this had happened in the past. And <laughs> I found out that this kind of thing is surprisingly rare. So if you go back to 1976, that was the ABA NBA merger. I could only find one other case where a player played a regular season or playoff game for not one, but both NBA finals teams in the same season. And that was in 2016 when Anderson Vergeau was on both the Cavs and the Warriors. That was the first time that it had been done in the history of the NBA. I found a, a Fox News article commenting on that at the time. But what about other sports? Well, in baseball, I found eight cases of a player playing for both of the World Series teams in the same year. Most recently, it was accomplished by lefty reliever Arthur Rhodes. He was on both the Cardinals and Rangers in 2011. The year before that, there were two players that played for both teams. Chris Ray and Benji Molina played for both the Giants and the Rangers. And that actually makes sense because they were traded for each other on oh. July 1st, <laughs> 2010. And maybe the best player on the baseball list was Lonnie Smith, who in 1985 was on both the St. Louis Cardinals and the Kansas City Royals. He was traded within, you know, uh, from one side of the state to the other uh, at midseason. And by the way, if you haven't seen John Boyce's video about why Lonnie Smith might be the most interesting athlete of the 1980s, everybody should check that out as soon as the podcast is over. It's great. We'll put the link in the description. Anyway, sadly, it is impossible for anyone to join this club in baseball in 2020 because none of the players on currently active playoff teams played for any of the other currently active playoff teams. Uh, I was stunned that this didn't happen more in football either. Now, I was working from Pro Football Reference data, which only covers players that played regular season or playoff games. So if you were in camp, if you're in preseason practice squad, it would not consider you to have been on a team. But if you look at the games that count, you go back to the start of the Super Bowl era in 1966, I only found three cases where a guy played for both contestants in the same year. One was a linebacker named Cole Ie, who was on both the Patriots and Rams in 2001. And fun, funny enough, he found himself being interviewed by the press in 2019 when the Patriots and Rams played again <laughs> in the Super Bowl. Uh, there was an offensive lineman named Jeff, Jeff Dellenbach, who played for both the Packers and Patriots in 96. And there was a long snap named David Jones, who was on both the Broncos and the Washington football team in 1987. Jones's story is actually kind of sad. So in the NFC championship game against Sarah's Vikings, he got knocked unconscious on a hit and he immediately retired like from the hospital afterward uh, because he feared long-term spinal damage from his injury. So he didn't even play in the Super Bowl, but he had some interesting quotes when they asked him about the fact that he played for both teams that were going to go to the Super Bowl. So he said, quote, I'm glad the football team is going. I'm obviously <laughs> paraphrasing for what he actually said, the, the, the name of the team. I'm glad football team is going. I'm for the football team. I would not be rooting for the Broncos whatsoever. He then said that he would make the trip to San Diego with football team for the Super Bowl and tell the coaches everything he knew about the Broncos. So it sounds like he didn't have Whew. a very good time in Denver. Jeez. He wanted to get his revenge against them. And he did get yeah. his revenge. Uh, we all remember Doug Williams uh, winning, winning that game. Uh, but last but not least, let's talk about your new favorite sport, Sarah hockey. This was actually kind of a gold mine for Dion waiters, all stars compared with the other sports that I looked at. So I went back to 1943 start of the original six era. And I found 12 instances of a player being on both sides of a Stanley cup final matchup. 
Even though it's only happened once since 1999, Daniel Carcillo was on both the Kings and Rangers in 2014, but there were some pretty good players on this list. There was Jeff Cortnell, who scored 36 goals between the Edmonton Oilers and Boston Bruins in 1988. Uh, Larry Murphy, who was a Hall of Fame defenseman, he was on both the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Minnesota North Stars in 1991. And who could forget veteran defenseman Slava Fetisov, who was on both the Detroit Red Wings and Jeff's New Jersey Devils in 1995. Fetisov famously was a member of Detroit's Russian Five, so shout out to longtime 538 podcast listeners. Ahead of their time podcast, check it out. We covered the the story of Russians coming to the NHL there. Uh, But Fetisov, he would actually win two more rings legitimately with the Red Wings a couple years later, but I couldn't quite figure out whether he physically received a championship ring from the Devils in 1995 since in the NHL unlike the NBA it's actually up to the team's discretion as to whether it gives a ring to a player that spent some time on the team or not so anyway congrats to Dion Waiters no matter what ends up happening because he will win a ring either way and my big question for you guys is if you were on the team that just lost the championship to the team that you had previously played for would you even want a ring from the team that just beat your team or would you accept it just to sell it on eBay later what do you guys think yeah I'm not in the business of turning down fancy rings so uh Yeah, those things caught a twenty to thirty thousand dollars was the quote I saw in this one of Slava Fetisov's Red Wings rings. I feel like I would want the ring. If you're the kind of player who's gonna get traded in the middle of a season, I think I would think my contributions here were valuable to whoever I played for. Give me that ring. Who do you what is the rule, Neil, for um getting your name etched on the cup you have to play in the playoffs or just play for the team during the regular season i think it's like 40 regular season games or at least one playoff game to cover situations where somebody was like on the team but then was hurt you know was a meaningful member of the team but then couldn't play in the playoffs but yeah so i, I for that it's a little different than the the get a ring they're a little more liberal i feel like with you know you get a ring and you get a ring uh but but with Dion Waiters, you definitely get a ring. He's rooting for the Lakers, though, right? Because they for sure will give him money. Yeah, they would for sure give him money, whereas right. the Heat probably wouldn't, but might. Just I to... mean, he's also rooting for the Lakers because it's the team he's currently on. But like, <laughs> yeah, because but... at, at Basketball Reference, you don't get credited with winning a championship uh, unless you played in the playoffs for the team that won the championship. So I think that that's what he's thinking about his legacy with. Exactly. That's what it's actually about. How will basketball reference.com remember me? Um, no, that is actually where it's, where it's at. Okay. That will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Lindsay, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.